we're moving on um, to, to have and have not. Um, and this um, novel was written uh, in a fairly haphazard fashion. It was written in 19, between 1935 and 1937. Basically, um, it was written when Hemingway was taking a break from his coverage of the Spanish Civil War. So he would be in Spain for the Spanish Civil War, and then he would um, come back um, to the uh, United States, but actually um, also to the Bahamas to write to have and have not. So uh, we'll be reading, you guys know that we'll be reading For Whom the Bell Tolls, um, For Whom the Bell Tolls and to have and have not are really interlocking in multiple ways because one is about the Spanish Civil War and this one's written when Hemingway was covering the Spanish Civil War. So we can really think of those um, as in dialogue in really interesting ways. Um, the, um, a hotel that Hemingway stayed at uh, when he was writing to have and have not uh, was in the Bahamas, is in Bimini, uh, is the Confit Angler Hotel. Actually, um, the hotel burned down, so it's no longer there, but this was a picture taken before that. It was really uh, lucky that, that there was this picture. Um, and inside uh, there, there's a plaque saying that this was the home of Ernest Hemingway. Um, he was there for two years. Um, he probably wrote to have and have not in various different places, but this was one of the main places that he stayed at when he wrote the novel. Um, as we also know, Cuba um, was very important to Hemingway. Um, this is uh, his house still standing uh, between the Vahir, um, which is now the Museo um, Ernest Hemingway in Havana. Um, and this is um, a picture of Hemingway writing. Um, he wrote The Man, O Man and the Sea when he was in Cuba in this very house um, and all his books were there. So, um, but this was probably, uh, the picture was probably taken a little later um, in the 1950s. Um, so I found some uh, old pictures of Havana in the 1930s. This is the waterfront, this is the El Malacan uh, with the seawall. You can see that there's some really very magnificent buildings uh, on the waterfront. And this is the main avenue, the Avenida de los Presidentes, a very, very impressive looking um, avenue. Cuba was actually called the Paris of the Western Hemisphere in the first half of the 20th century. And we can see why. Uh, it really was a very magnificent place. And uh, this is downtown. Havana, still in the 30s. Um, and this is a bar that Hemingway uh, went to quite a lot, it's the Sloppy Joe's bar. And here's a picture of him and the British playwright, Noah Cowood, at the Sloppy Joe's bar. So um, really interesting historic pictures. Other than drinking, Hemingway also went fishing <laughs> a lot. As we can see, it's a very intimate knowledge uh, of, of fishing. And the fish that especially uh, preoccupy him was the marlin. So this is a description from To Have and Have Not um, of what a marlin looked like. And I just happened to found this picture. This seemed to correspond exactly to that. The sword, the eye, an open lower jaw, and huge purple black head of a black marlin. From this picture, we can't really see how big it is. This is a picture of Hemingway on the boat Anita. Um, this is 
just before he rode to Have and Have Not um, with his friends. Um, and the next picture is um, taken in the Mini um, and with his second wife, Pauline, and his three sons, uh, Gregory, John, and Patrick, 1935. And we can see just how huge uh, the Marlin is. It could weigh up to a thousand pounds. So um, the, this picture is, I downloaded um, well, online, thanks to the Ernest Hemingway collection at the JFK Library in Boston. Um, so this is just to acknowledge a very important collection. Um, if you guys want to do future work on Hemingway, that's the place to go. Um, is helpful um, in thinking about to have and have not um, to think a little bit about the publication history uh, of this novel. It was also published as short stories. It's two short stories. Um, One Trip Across was published in the Cosmopolitan 1934, um, and then The Traders Return, published in the Esquire magazine 1936, and then To Have and Have Not was published by Scribner's in 1937. Um, so. Um, because of the way it came out initially as short stories, I think once again we have to think about the narrative structure of the novel. And there's a lot to think about because it turns out that this is an incredibly complicated switching back and forth between the first person and the third person. So part one is told in the first person. It seems very straightforward. It's told from Harry Morgan's point of view is also the spring, the session called spring. So um, it is in many ways the spring in Harry Morgan's life. Um, And then part two is told in the third person. Um, And this is actually quite jolting. All of a sudden we see Harry Morgan from the outside. Um, As we knew nothing about him, he's reintroduced to us as he and even as the man um, a very, very alienating perspective in part two. And that's the section called The Fall. And then part three is called The Winter. And here it's even more complicated than that is mixed narration. It begins with someone who's not even a very important character, someone called Albert, who tells the story in chapter nine. Um, and then it switches back to Harry in chapter 10. And then we get third person narration for a good part of the, of part two, uh, part three. And then the very final chapter, uh, chapter 26, it switches back to the first person narration, but it's told by Marie, Harry's wife. Um, So at the very least, we can say that Hemingway is experimenting with all kinds of narrative points of views. Um, And so the most fundamental question um, has to do with pronouns. Um, Who is attached to which pronoun? Why does Hemingway uh, choose to use certain pronouns? Why does he choose to use certain points of views for that section? Um, And this is also a good moment to start thinking about the interconnections among the novels. I know that you guys just turned in your first paper, so it's not too early to start thinking about the next big project. Um, And the interconnections among the novels would be a very good approach to think about that larger project. So um, two things are very clear in terms of the prior publication as short stories. 
to have and have not obviously looks back to in our time. Uh, that seems to be Hemingway's habit is to pub publish uh, plots as short stories. Actually, it's very common. Uh, publish plots as short stories and then to have a more uh, larger entity. Um, whether or not um, the two are related in terms of this kind of prior publication history is a good question. Um, but to have and have not is also linked um, to the sound and the fury because of the multiple narrative voices. Um, in the sound of fury, we know that there are just four, right? So the three brothers um, each gets one section and then the omniscient uh, narration in section four. In to have and have not, it's much less clear-cut than that, as I just mentioned. Uh, someone who's quite marginal to a story like Albert gets to have the section. So he obviously doesn't have the centrality that Benji or Quentin or Jason um, that the three brothers do in, in The Sound of Fury. Uh, why does someone like Albert get to tell the story? Um, it's um, even though the two novels have shared common ground in terms of multiple narrative voices, the actual configuration of those voices, um, the, the two different configurations in the two novels. Um, and finally, something new is also emerging in To Have and Have Not that we haven't seen so far or that. Um, hasn't been in the foreground uh, up to this point, and I'd like to call your attention to it, uh, which is characters as generic types. It um, has to do with classification, with taxonomy of social types. We see it in the very title of the novel. It's divided into two, the haves and the have-nots, um, and obviously two social types. Um, it's very much um, a kind of organizing principle in this novel, uh, but it also looks forward um, to the uh, Fitzgerald stories that we'll be reading next week, uh, a story like The Rich Boy is very much about this kind of classifiable and generic type. So um, I want to think about this. Um, want to think about the difference between two novels. Um, in terms of another novel that um, is that Hemingway is famous for, um, which is *The Old Man and the Sea*. Um, and um, they're both uh, set in Cuba. They're both um, about Cuba to some extent, but though not centrally about Cuba, but set in Cuba. Uh, but in many ways, they represent two different sides of the spectrum. Um, to have and have not um, is, as we can see from the title, is a divided canvas. is populated by two taxonomic groups. Um, so it's very much about classifiability. Not only is it giving us um, two taxonomic groups, but it's also about the phenomenon of classifiability. Um, are human beings classified? Can they be put under various generic labels? That is a big question in this novel. Um, to, the old man and the sea is in many ways on the other side of the spectrum. Uh, as we can see, as, and you, as you guys know, um, the story, the novel, is about a solitary um, fisherman, Cuban fisherman in Santiago, um, and his decision to go out alone um, and he did get this huge marlin, once again, that fish, 
Um, and he's trying to save that Marlin uh, from being eaten up by sharks. So the novel is really about his struggle against the sharks, and he loses out. The Marlin is completely cleaned out by the sharks by the end of the novel. Uh, but in spite of that ending, it is really about the heroic struggle of a man against elemental forces. So um, most of us know Hemingway, actually, as the Hemingway of the old man and the sea. And it's um, helpful to keep that in mind. But Hemingway is also very interested in the other side of the equation, which is about um, not so much about individuals as about individuals uh, who can be understood or can be encompassed or accounted for in terms of social types. So um, we see it not only um, in the main characters in the novel, but also in very marginal characters, people who appear just once. Um, they are also presented to us as social types. So the very opening of the novel, um, Harry Morgan is approached by three young Cubans um, who want to pay him a lot of money to be taken to the United States. Um, and this is how they are described. They were good-looking young fellows, wore good clothes. None of them wore hats. And they looked like they had plenty of money. They talked plenty of money anyway. And they spoke the kind of English Cubans with money speak. Right? So obviously, classifiability is front and center in this passage, um, the very syntax, they talk plenty of money, is an expression that we use. And it certainly is the, the kind of labeling that goes on behind that kind of syntax. Um, so the outward appearance, the clothes, the speech patterns of these people easily classify them. Uh, we don't really need to know much else about them. And Hemingway is not interested in telling us much else about them. They are just there as representatives of Cubans with money who need to get out of Cuba at that moment. Um, but because classifiability seems so central to the novel, the question obviously arises as to whether or not Harry Morgan himself is classifiable. He is a hero, he's a protagonist, who inhabits a novel that is populated by lots of social types, right? Whether or not he belongs, whether or not he fits completely into that landscape is the open question. Um, is he able uh, to break away occasionally from that landscape? Does he manage to stand out and be an individual that we would recognize and that will stick in our memories as one individual rather than as one social type? That is the question that we have to think about. And I'd like to break that down a little bit um, in terms of four uh, interconnected clusters of issues. One is, um, to what extent is Harry Morgan a racist? Is he a racist or is he not a racist? Um, the other question, and that's something that we've already seen in Faulkner, the play of pronouns, um, and that is highlighted, dramatized, by Hemingway's choice of narrative technique is whether he is an I or whether he is a he. And the choice of those pronouns obviously has narrative implications, right? If he is an I, very likely we're going to see the inside of him uh, is going to be an interior view of Harry. 
if he's going to be a he, very likely it's going to be an external view of Harry, um, just as in Faulkner there's an external view and not very pretty view of Dilsey and the fourth section of the Sound of Fury. Um, and finally, going back to the title of the, of the, of the novel, uh, whether he is a half or a half-not, does he exit the novel empty-handed? Um, can he say that he has achieved something, um, that something is in his possession, um, that he has something, he owns something? Uh, with not, he owns a boat in the beginning, uh, whether he still owns anything at all at the end of the novel, that is an open question. Um, I raised the question of racism because that is the question raised by Toni Morrison. Um, Toni Morrison we know as the author of novels, right? We know her as a novelist, she's written novels like Beloved. Um, but she is also um, uh, someone who um, gives a lot of talks and she also turns some of those talks into essays. So Playing in the Dark <coughs> is a collection of essays published by Toni Morrison. And she devotes a long section to Hemingway and to, ha to have and have not. Um, it's very interesting that this is not the best known novel by Hemingway, but this is the novel that um, Morrison singles out. Um, although she's singling it out not to praise it, uh, but to point to some troubling aspects of to have and have not. Um, and this is what Morrison says. Harry includes a nigger and his crew, a man who throughout all of part one has no name. His appearance is signaled by the sentence, just then the nigger we had getting bait comes down the dock. The black man is not only nameless for five chapters, he's not even hired just someone we had getting bait, a kind of trained response, not an Asian possessing a job. And then she goes on to say, the spatial and conceptual difference is marked by the shortcut that the term nigger allows with all of its color and caste implications. The term occupies a territory between man and animal. Very, very um, strong objections to the novel. Um, in response, I'd like just not to defend Hemingway completely, uh, but just to point out that the word nigger is used by Faulkner, as we've just seen, um, is also used by Mark Twain, because that's the word that those characters would have used. Huck Finn would have used the nigger in the 19th century. It would have been very odd for Mark Twain not to use that word in this novel. Um, someone like Quentin, certainly Jason, would have used the word nigger if they were living people. So it would have been very odd for Faulkner not to use that word because that's the basic speech pattern of his characters. Um, but quite aside from that, um, but I should also point out that um, Morrison actually concedes that it's only in part one that the, this black man um, doesn't have a name. He actually he does have a name in part two. So we can look at that moment of transition when the black man acquires a name, all of a sudden find out what he's called. Um, but uh, before we get to part two, I just want to actually look at another one to call attention to um, a passage where the word nigger is used, but not to describe the black man, 
that Morrison has in mind. This is an earlier appearance of that word nigger, um, and this is actually coming right after um, Harry's conversation with those three uh, rich Cubans. Um, all of a sudden, this this scene, this fighting, breaking out um, and shooting, um, and it turns out that the key player in that shooting is a black character. The nigger with the Tommy gun got his face almost into the street and gave the back of the wagon a burst from underneath. And sure enough, one came down, falling toward the sidewalk with his head above the curb. At 10 feet, the nigger shot him in the belly with a Tommy gun with what must have been the last shot in it because I saw him throw it down. No Pancho sat down hard and went over forwards. He was trying to come up, still holding on to the Luger, only he couldn't get his head up when the nigger took the shotgun that was lying against the wheel of the car by the chauffeur and blew the side of his head off. Some nigger. So we might object to the violence of the scene, uh, but what is clear in this passage is the tremendous admiration that Hemingway has for this black character. He's meant to kill, to, his job is to kill the three rich Cubans, um, and he accomplishes that task magnificently. Um, so this is, and, and <coughs> Hemingway is just using every bit of his writerly skill to convey to us, even those of us who really know nothing about guns um, and nothing about the art of shooting, to highlight for us what an art this is, to be able to get your face almost down to the street and to be able to get someone, um, to get the shotgun when there's no more, nothing left in your own Tommy gun, uh, and to be able to finish off the last of the three Cubans, one against three, um, you know, just the performance of it. Um, so there's nothing but admiration in this description of the black man. And we can almost get a kind of a capsule summary of the intense admiration from the two-word phrase that concludes the passage, some nigger. Okay, Hemingway is still using the word nigger, but the expression some nigger almost completely undermines that word. Yes, he's a nigger, he's a classifiable type, but he's a magnificent specimen. He's an amazing specimen of that type. So much so that he's stretching that type to his limits, so much so that he's almost making that type non-functional. He's such an amazing character that is almost, you know, you can call him a nigger, but it doesn't really mean anything. He's some nigger. Um, it turns out that some, that construction, some followed by what appears to be a derogatory term, that is a kind of a verbal tick for Harry Morgan. He uses that phrase over and over again for other characters as well. So we can go and look at some other instances when he uses that construction. Um, and it turns out that he also uses it <laughs> for the man who, has, uh, who owes him $825. 
and is able to clear out without paying a cent. This is the very rich Mr. Johnson who charters the boat for fishing, manages to lose the whole um, other, um, um, the, 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 um, the, the works on the, on the boat, um, manages to, to, um, uh, to do real damage uh, to, 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 to Harry's boat because of his inactness as a fisherman. Um, and so he owes $825. And this Mr. Johnson, even though he is quite inept as a fisherman, he nonetheless is very skilled in one thing, and this is what this passage pays tribute to. He went on the plane, frankly, he frankly said. All right, there it was. The consulate was closed. I have three cents. And anyhow, the plane was in Miami by now. I couldn't even send a wire. Some Mr. Johnson, all right. It was my fault. I should have known better. Hell, I didn't even have enough money to put in gas. It was a hell of a note, all right. Some Mr. Johnson. It is not the same kind of performance as the shooting. But it gets from Harry the same involuntary admiration, even though he's obviously the victim of that magnificent performance on the part of Mr. Johnson. It takes nerve, it takes whatever, ruthlessness. We can attach any number of adjectives to Mr. Johnson. But Hemingway, in his much more economic style of writing, uses only one phrase. And that is enough. That's completely <coughs> adequate for Mr. Johnson. There's no need for any string of adjectives to be attached to Mr. Johnson. Some Mr. Johnson, that does it all. Um, so we can see right away that this is really Hemingway's way of both paying tribute to a generic type, in this case, a rich man. You know, his, even his name is generic, Mr. Johnson. Um, he's a generic type. He's a generic rich man who manages um, you know, to uh, get to be where he is by what he does, by doing certain numbers of things. And he's very, very good at that. Uh, so once again, this is a, a generic type, a specimen of a generic type that is so good at what he's doing that he stretches the limit of that type. One other example, and this one is much more analogous to the expression, some nigger. Um, we know that um, actually even in Cuba, there's a very uh, significant, even in Havana now, there's a very um, important uh, Chinese population. And it turns out that there is a Chinese character in to have and have not. Um, he's a very smooth talking, smooth looking uh, China man. Um, he wears a white suit and a silk shirt with a black tie and a $125 Panama hat. So he also talks like this. Um, and Hemingway gives us a specimen of the speech pattern of this very classifiable type. He talks like an Englishman. Quite so, Mr. Singh said. How many of my unfortunate compatriots could you both accommodate? I mean, Carrie. He stood up and I watched him go out frankly smiled at him as he went. Mr. Singh didn't look at him. He was a smooth-looking chink. All right, some chink. Okay, so once again, 
Um, this is a type that outperforms the type by a wide margin, right? So this is about what kind of performance can be expected within a generic type and the extent of that outperformance, even as a smooth talking chink, Mr. Singh is very, very memorable. Um, and we see it um, in even when Mr. Singh is dead, he's still memorable and still more than just a specimen. Um, you guys probably know um, that uh, Mr. Singh is killed by Harry um, because he wants Harry, he wants Harry basically to kill off 12 uh, Chinese passengers uh, that he has no intention of shipping to where they thought they were going. Um, so he wants Harry to kill those 12 Chinese passengers. And instead of killing those 12 Chinese passengers, Harry kills Mr. Singh. But it, not without a lot of resistance, uh, very heroic resistance, uh, magnificent resistance from Mr. Singh. And this is the outcome. Uh, he's dead. He's killed by Harry, uh, but he's left a mark on Harry. Um, and this is actually the beginning of the bodily injuries sustained by Harry. Um, this is actually one of the structural principles in the novel, is the things that eat into Harry's body. And that is part of the um, catalog of things that, that we can put on the have-not column. Um, Harry starts with, he's a able-bodied person, he's uh, completely, he's always bodily parts, um, and he gradually loses uh, some parts of his body, or parts of his body would get damaged. So this is the first instance of something that happens to his body and is coming to him because of Mr. Singh. I held a wheel with my knee and opened up my shirt and saw where Mr. Singh bit me. It was quite a bite, and put iron dye on it. And then I sat there staring and wondering whether a bite from a Chinaman was poisonous. Hell no, that bite wasn't poisonous. A man like that Mr. Singh probably scrub his teeth two or three times a day. So Mr. Singh. This is a Hemingway writing and not Faulkner, but we see the same mixture of tragedy and comedy right here in through this play. Right? So it is not a great experience to be bitten by anyone, and this seems to be a very bad bite. Um, but the bite is also an occasion on what a generic, smooth-looking chink would do. Um, he's going to be brushing his teeth three or four times a day, and you can count on his hygiene to save you from getting any infection from his bite. So there's one consoling fact um, that he's, at least if he, you have to be bitten, it's better to be bitten by the likes of Mr. Singh than to be by someone else. Um, that is the dark comedy um, that um, is emerging in To Have and Have Not. Um, but it also is uh, a meditation um, really on all those derogatory labels. Um, and the question to us, uh, as to whether or not we should consider them allowable, whether or not we should say this is an instance where it is completely legitimate to use those words, or whether we still think that some other word would have been preferred. So I encourage you to talk about this issue in section. Um, but now, um, 
I'd like to switch to part two of to have and have not, um, and to the possibility that Harry Morgan himself might actually be portrayed as a type, uh, as dramatized uh, and reinforced by Hemingway's narrative technique. So we're switching to third-person narration um, and a very jolting outside view of Harry Morgan. And this is also the moment when the black character actually acquires a name. I'm sorry, Wesley, the man said, but I got to steer. You treat a man no better than a dog, the nigger said. He was getting ugly now, but the man was still sorry for him. I'm going to make you comfortable, Wesley, he said. You just lay quiet. You ain't going to fix me up, the nigger said. The man, whose name was Harry Morgan, said nothing then because he liked the nigger and there was nothing to do now but hit him. But he couldn't hit him. Um, it is uh, very, almost seems an act of deliberate hostility against his own character. Um, after so many pages when we're inside the head and inside the skin of Harry Morgan to encounter that phrase, the man whose name was Harry Morgan. Um, it can be more externalizing than that, can be more objectifying than that. What is interesting is that that objectifying description is actually used for a white protagonist in the same moment when the black character is acquiring a name, right? So this kind of double dynamics suggests that this is a very, very important moment. The black character acquires a name and the white character also acquires a name, but in a bad way. He had, if when he had been telling the story, he doesn't refer to himself as Harry Morgan. For the white character to acquire a name and to be referred to as the man whose name was Harry Morgan puts him in almost exactly the same structural position as the black man, Wesley. Each of them acquires a name, except that for the black character, to acquire a name is a good thing, whereas for the white character, acquiring a name is about the worst thing that can happen to him at that moment. Um, why is it that Hemingway would suddenly switch to this third-person narration and this very alienating mechanism that is being visited upon Harry Morgan? Um, we can think of a number of issues. Um, in section, in part one, um, we sort of know uh, what Harry does for a living, right? You know, we sort of have our, you know, why does this man have a boat? Uh, we sort of have our conjectures, but in, in part two, all of that is being clarified for us. Um, we know that the, the black man is, is shot, um, and um, there's the smell of liquor all over the boat. Um, the boat itself is referred to as the booze boat. So we know that's what Harry does, is that he smuggles liquor into the United States. Um, he becomes just that, you know, that's his profession, um, and that's what we know him by. Um, that takes over the intimate internal view that we had of him in part one, and because that is the occupation 
that lands him in this tight, in this very tight spot with his companion, the black man Wesley, being shot. And we also know that something else happens uh, as well, that, that Wesley is not the only one um, to be shot on that occasion, um, as we find out in this next uh, description. Who the hell shot Woods, he asked him. You or me? You were shot Woods, the nigger said. But I ain't never been shot. I didn't figure to get shot. I ain't paid to get shot. I don't want to be shot. Take it easy, Wesley, the man told him. Don't do you any good to talk like that. Um, just this one little detail that in fact both of them were shot. Uh, because they obviously had a run-in, um, the Bruceville was discovered. Um, and so it was a major event um, with casualties um, in both Harry and Wesley. So far, what is in the foreground in part two is the casualty, is the wound sustained by Wesley. And that's what he's complaining about, he's making um, everyone aware that he's been shot. The extent of Harry's wound is revealed to us in this very oblique, very marginal mention. Who the hell shot Woods? He asked, you or me? You, you were shot Woods. So Wesley acknowledges that actually the more serious wound is on Harry. But we don't actually know what the consequences um, might be. Because right now, the limelight is really on Wesley and the fact that he's furious for having gotten shot, uh, for going on this trip with Harry. Um, and Harry trying his best to appease, um, to, to appease Wesley. And then in the rest of part two, we also have um, this outside character, uh, Frederick Harrison, who takes up a lot of the space in part two, uh, wanting to report Harry to the authorities. Um, so part two is in many ways, um, a part of the story in which we see Harry um, as um, someone who should be reported to the authorities, someone who is the recipient of complaint from of ill will, of anger, um, of a grudge at the very least from Wesley, um, and who's also someone that an outsider would want to report to the authorities. Um, he's someone who's doing something illegal, um, and he's uh, you know, he's outside the law in many ways. Um, so all of that suggests that it is fitting that in part two, um, the story should be told from outside of his point of view, that we're no longer inside his skin. We just see him as he is seen by other people, as he's seen by Wesley, as he's seen by Captain Willie, who tries to protect him, as he's seen through the binoculars uh, by Frederick Harrison, who wants to report him. Um, so he really is an object, he's a seen object, um, and it is fitting that the seen object should be conveyed to us through the third person narration. But I think that there's also another reason um, why uh, Hemingway would want to switch from first person narration to third person narration, is that already in part two, we're beginning to see a symmetry between Harry and the black man, Wesley, right? We just saw that both of them acquire a name in part two. 
uh, we now see in this moment that they are also linked. They are kindred in one sense. They are kindred in a narrative sense, um, in the same way that Benji, Quentin, and Jason are kindred in a narrative sense in Faulkner's novel. These two are kindred in a narrative sense because the same thing happens to them, being shot. Um, that is the tie between this black character and this white character. Um, and it, the only difference between them, actually, is the degree of severity of that shot. And here, actually, we know that um, it is the black man who actually is the lighter one, that is the white protagonist um, who is suffering the, 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 the worst, um, the, the suffering more, actually, on this occasion. Um, so both a commonality between the white character and the black character, but also a potential non-differentiation in the sense that it's the person who is the lighter one, who's being taken care of by Harry. Um, let's look, then go to um, chapter 9, which is in part 3. Um, and here, um, it is, this is a chapter that is told by Albert, a very marginal character. Um, so um, it is told from um, Albert's point of view, but Harry is once again uh, seen from the outside. He is a he in chapter 9, in part 3, chapter 9. But what is also interesting about part 3, uh, chapter 9, is that it basically is a revisiting of the <coughs> earlier moment between Harry and Wesley. And now we know the consequences of that gunshot wound earlier. What happened to your arm? The lawyer asked Harry. Harry has to sleeve pinned up to the shoulder. I didn't like the look of it, so I cut it off, Harry told him. You and who else cut it off? Me and a doctor cut it off, Harry said. I think that Hemingway really wants that shock that comes from that lack of knowledge in section in part two. Part two goes on for quite a while, and all the time when we're reading about Frederick Harrison, we have no idea that the wound is serious enough that the arm would have to be amputated. And it's the withholding of that information in part two that maximizes it in part three. It is a shock to us that that is what will have to happen to Harry. And none of them would have, been, would have been conveyed to us if Harry had been telling the story. It is impossible to talk about the amputation of the arm with this kind of dramatic impersonality um, that Hemingway is aiming for. If it had been told from Harry's point of view, it would have been about his pain, but Hemingway is not into conveying the inside view of pain. That is not a phenomenal feel that he chooses to enter. Um, some other novelists do a great job within that phenomenal feel of pain. That is not Hemingway's chosen subject. What he wants is to give us that complete, impersonal, neutral, almost joking kind of look at someone losing his arm. Um, and that can only be achieved by looking at Harry from the outside. 
So the combination of the straightforward third-person narration in part two, and then Albert telling the story in part three, chapter nine, the combination of those maximizes the shock of realizing that really Harry is starting to lose something. He's starting, he's well on his way in his trajectory towards the have-not category. He's well on his way. Losing one's arm is, 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 um, <laughs> is, is quite different from losing lots of other things, uh, to say the least. So um, we've just seen that Harry has something in common with Wesley, but we also see that he has something else in common with someone else as well. Because of course someone else prior to this had also lost his arm, Mr. Singh. In the fight between Harry and Mr. Singh, Harry tries to bend Mr. Singh's arm behind him and at one point he just hears this funny little noise that is made when an arm is broken um, and then he lets go of the arm because the arm isn't good to Mr. Singh anymore. So we've seen that dramatized rendition of someone losing his arm and this deliberately undramatized rendition of someone losing his arm and only appearing as a man without, for Harry to appear as a man without uh, an arm in the eyes as seen by the doctor, but by, by a lawyer. So once again, is Harry as a seen object, but still the common ground is there. He and Mr. Singh actually do have something in common. Mr. Singh loses his arm, he loses his life. Um, Harry loses his arm, whether or not he's going to lose his life, like Mr. Singh, is the open question um, in to have and have not. So uh, this is a novel uh, that actually, it is very hard to predict the ending of this novel, so I'm very happy not to tell you the ending uh, and just leave it as an open question. Um, to what extent is the symmetry um, between Harry and Mr. Singh going to extend? How far does that extend? Um, but just one more um, meditation um, on the question of having and not having. Um, it seems that Harry actually is quite aware that he is on his way to becoming a have-not, um, but he has his own way of classifying himself. So this is one character's attempt to classify himself in his own fashion and what is going to be used as the criteria for classifying the haves and the have-not. You can classify people by the amount of money they have, or you can classify them by whether or not they have arms, or you can classify them by something else. So here is Harry proposing to classify himself in his own fashion. The hell with my arm. You lose an arm, you lose an arm. There's worse things than lose an arm. You've got two arms, and you've got two of something else. And a man's still a man with one arm, or with one of those. The hell with it, he says. I don't want to talk about it. Then after a minute, he says, I got those other two still. So this is the celebrated concept of the cojones that, um, that, that Harry <laughs> uh, still has, a word that Hemingway is very fond of. Um, and uh, that's how he would like to classify himself. You know, maybe the arm is the most obvious thing that people will see, but the most obvious thing is not actually the thing that best classifies someone. Um, something that is invisible um, could be a better classifier. 
So um, I think that the novel entertains that question, is how much can you lose? You know, Harry is going to lose a lot of things in the course of this novel. Um, you can keep on losing a lot of things and still remain yourself. At least that's the hope, or maybe that's a fantasy. Um, we have to decide whether it's a legitimate hope, a real hope, a hope that actually is, has some grounding in reality, or whether it's just a fantasy, uh, whether it's so important when you've lost so much that you really have stopped being yourself. You're no longer what you used to be, whether that is indeed the case. So we'll come back um, and, um, and, and wrap up the novel, but think more about uh, where we should put Harry.